This is hell. Flint, Michigan was poisoned, is poisoned, has been poisoned. For five long years, the city's residents fought to have clean, drinkable water, the kind you could actually take a shower in or make a cup of coffee with without giving you a potentially deadly pneumonia like Legionnaire's disease. In 1980, Flint had the highest median income among young people in the entire United States. Yeah, Flint. Hell, Detroit was right behind Flint for highest median income among young people at the start of the 1980s. By the end of the decade, like many Rust Belt towns which had seen manufacturing leave for lower wage employees, weaker environmental regulations, and tax breaks elsewhere, you know, Reaganomics. Flint was gutted and filmmakers were making documentaries about the devastation and the attempts at, by Flint's residents to cope with their new impoverished reality. People like the residents, or sorry, people left Flint, the city shrank, the water system once meant for far more residents began to decay. Eventually Flint was in such dire straits that the governor felt like he had to appoint an emergency financial manager and have them rule the city instead of the democratically elected mayor in order to get the city's budget straightened out. The decisions that were made during the emergency manager's tenure led, unbelievably, to a lot of lead suddenly coming out of every Flint resident's tap. And for five years, citizens would have to figure out how to get clean water on their own. And the lengths they had to go through each and every day make stay-at-home orders during a pandemic look like a cakewalk. Finally, last week, the people of Flint may, may have finally tasted a little bit of justice when a massive lawsuit and charges against the state's leaders, including the former governor, were finally determined in court. In a few minutes, we'll get caught up on what has happened in Flint's water crisis when we talk to reporter Anna Clark, who wrote the ProPublica article... The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water Crisis. Anna is the author of The Poison City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy, which won the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism and the Rachel Carson Environment Book Award. It was also a finalist for the Helen Bernstein Book Award and long-listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal. Anna also edited a Detroit anthology, a Michigan notable book, and Michigan Quarterly Review's Not One Without, a special issue on water. She is a nonfiction faculty member in Alma College's Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. Anna was on our show back in July of 2018 to discuss her book, The Poison City. You can find that interview by searching on her name, Clark, when you go to thisishell.com. Find out more about Anna at her own website, annaclark.net. Sorry, annaclark.net. Follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. That's L-E-I-G-H. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, whatever the hell this is. Chuck Mertz producing this morning's show. It's Wednesday, so it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you doing? Anything new by you? Um, well, I uh, think I got a contact high this morning, <laughs> driving behind a hot-boxed uh, white Mercedes C300. <laughs> really? All the, all the way up... Th- Pulaski Avenue. <laughs> was it that obvious? Oh my God, it was awful. It was just like my windows were all closed, of course, because it's zero degrees outside or near freezing. And 
you know, I just got, kept on getting these wafts of... <laughs> Probably very good weed because it's a Mercedes, right? Yeah, you would think. <laughs> You'd hope so, at least. Uh, we got something in the mail I want to share with you in a little oh. bit, Alex. Or Alex, Richard, that you are going to find hilarious. But all I know is there are new variants of the coronavirus from the UK, South Africa, and Brazil. Variants that are more transmissible and can better evade vaccines. So, of course, the city of Chicago has decided this is the perfect time to reopen indoor seating at bars and restaurants. As Dr. Sadia Khan, an epidemiologist and cardiologist at Northwestern University School of Medicine, was quoted saying, even though our numbers right now may support trying to reopen restaurants and bars, I think that's very dangerous. We're expecting to see the UK variant or other made more contagious variants take over as the predominant cause of COVID in Chicago. And it's quite possible that reopening restaurants and bars may lead to a greater surge than we may already be facing. And seeing as how the Brazilian variant is already in Minneapolis, it won't be long before the before it comes here to Chicago. Of course, you know, we all want to see bars and restaurants open. There are people who depend on them for their livelihoods so they can pay rent and put food on their table and clothes on their backs. But we also want to keep those people alive and uninfected by a virus that can have permanent side effects, including that most permanent side effect of death, but far less important than a pandemic, which is poised to have another surge. Richard, please tell us what is this week's question from hell. Oh, I thought you were going to tell us what I what we got in the... I'll get to it oh, in just a second. Actually. You're going to like it. You're going to love it. <laughs> this week's question from hell is a question within a question. <laughs> what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? And what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever. This is hell merchandise you want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, click on support, and you can see all of our merchandise right there. You can leave your answer to our question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email me chuck at this is hell.com but we have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show thursday's show because we are announcing as we do every week we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment of truth jeff will be watching the detectives Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, it's what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. So, Richard, we always tell people they can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. They can send us messages on Facebook. They can direct message us via Twitter. But you can also just mail us stuff in regular old mail to thisishell2251 West Devon. Second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And every so often we get really amazing packages from KP Printing in Detroit. I don't know exactly where it is because all they have as a return address is P.O. Box. But also on their address, their return address, it says uh, Detroit, Michigan, Earth. And when they sent me, sent us this letter, it says to, this is L2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659, Earth. And in big letters on the outside of the envelope, it says, Fire Louis DeJoy, who is the Postmaster General. So if you're mailing this and you're a you know, postal worker and you see this, you see Fire Louis DeJoy, fire your boss on this envelope. And they always send me really great stuff. But it's, sometimes it's random and it doesn't really make sense. So, Richard, if you can see this from where you are sitting, can you read 
what this card says. Yes, Biden, the last sexist president. I don't know what the <laughs> hell that means. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's, it is brilliant. It's, it's almost like uh, one of those cutout newspaper uh, 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 ransom notes. <laughs> it does kind of look like that. <laughs> That is just awesome. So thanks to the great people at KP Printing in Detroit. We also got more reactions from listeners about whether we should have politicians on the show or not. You told us last year when we were asked yet again to have a politician on the show that we should stay true to our rule that is more of a guideline, and that is no politicians or people from business on the show, as this is not the media, this is hell. And the media always seems to only give access to politicians or business people. My latest favorite is the number of network analysts who are called upon when covering whatever they're trying to pass off as breaking news. Can these alleged news networks please not only interview people who are actually on their payroll, elected representatives of the two major parties or uh, profiteers? Could they talk to somebody other than people from those three categories, politicians, business people, And the people that are on their own payroll. We are so adamant about our no politicians rule that back in 2007, we were contacted. It wasn't 2007. I take that back. It was 2011. We were contacted by the Bernie Sanders for president campaign to have Bernie on the show. They even sent us a copy of his book. But if you want us to bend or break that rule, then we'll break that rule. The whole thing came up again because on consecutive weeks, we got emails about having Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Suant on the show. Shama recently won re-election after Jeff Bezos and other billionaires pumped millions of dollars into her opponent's campaign. Bezos and others are now trying to recall Shama as, among other things, she wants to impose a tax on Amazon that would pay for things like a Green New Deal. So Joshua writes about us having politicians on the show, saying, Dear Mr. Mertz, please keep politicians off the show, including Shama Sawant, as someone who has both organized with Ms. Sawant and worked on her campaign in Seattle. I can confidently state that she has nothing to offer your excellent show. And if she doesn't as a politician, I am certain no other politician does best Josh so that's pretty much the nail in the coffin right there when you have someone who actually worked on her campaign and says she has nothing to offer someone who has done so much including getting a $15 minimum wage the first in nation ban on using chemical weapons against protesters landmark renters rights laws like the ban on winter evictions if she has nothing to offer as a politician then no politician has anything to offer we got a guest suggestion via Facebook from Stephen by way of his partner, Paula, because Steve no longer has a Facebook, and I'm curious how you can get rid of a Facebook. Stephen suggests via Paula, Hey Chuck, would absolutely love to hear your interview, hear you interview, Ken Lane about his recent book, Desert Oracle. I think he would be a welcome reprieve from the horrors of 2020. He has a leftist and environmentalist edge to his critiques of the world, and it fits in well with some of the interesting conspiracies and government cover-ups. He's an odd guy, but I really think it would be an interesting conversation. So uh, Stephen adds a publisher's description of Lane's book, and it has it states this, uh, from journal entries of long decreased... <laughs> From journal entries of long-deceased adventurers to stray railroad ad copy and musings on everything from desert flora, rumored cryptid sightings, and other paranormal phenomena, 
Ken Lane's Desert Oracle collects the weird and the wonderful of the American Southwest into a single essential volume. Steve Viapala, you had me at Stray Railroad ad copy and cryptid sightings. We also got a guest suggestion from Joe in Canada who writes, Hey Chuck, first time, long time. Got a recommendation for you. Y'all should ask Ronald E. Purser, who wrote a book called Mindfulness, How Mindfulness Became Capitalism, the New Capitalist Spirituality, to come on the show. He's a professor of, professor of management, I know, I know, at San Francisco State University, but he did a radio interview on CBC in which he was pretty good and went into how capital emptied Buddhist mindfulness practices of their original meanings and was made into basically a coping mechanism for us all as we are devoured by the machine. I guess he did some industrial democracy work in the past and became disillusioned with that. I don't know, seems like an interesting guy. You should ask him about spirituality and activism. Something I've come to realize lately is something way overlooked and neglected by all these godless folks on the left I'm surrounded by. (laughs) In solidarity, Joe. Thanks, Joe. I'll send your suggestion over to Alex's. I'm certain he would be interested in the topic as well because, you know, he's someone who's far more knowledgeable than I am about Eastern philosophy and meditation. Theron is, too. I think pretty much everybody on the show is. Olive in Cuba has another idea for a guest on the show. Olive suggests Charles E. Cobb Jr. And his book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible. Wishing you and your girly and family and all the producers a wonderful new year, Olive. This brings us uh, to a question for all of you. Uh, The Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, that came out back in uh, 2015. We were actually... approached the author, sent over a few interview requests, but we never heard back. However, it's a very timely book today and has not lost any of its relevance. But again, it's over five years old. So our question for you is, should we feature works on the show that are not necessarily new? Typically, the media only focuses on what has just been published or released. However, again, this is not the media, so should we be as concerned with a publication date as we are with the timeliness of a topic? Email us and tell us what you think. Finally, we got an email from Henry, who also has an idea for a guest on our show. Henry writes, Hi, Chuck. Been listening to your show for a while. And if you want to lighten the mood a bit on an upcoming episode, might I recommend Matthew Hangoltz Hetling. He wrote a book recently about a libertarian utopia. It's called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. If the rest of your audience is like me, they might enjoy it. Uh, this book was actually on our list last fall when it was originally published, and I had all sorts of past guests con- contacting me to have the author featured on the show. We even got his direct contact information from another past guest on the show. Somehow, I don't know what happened, it just fell between the uh, cracks, but yes, Henry, that is a good success- suggestion for lighter fare, if you will. And again, if any of you have any guest suggestions or topic ideas, for here on This Is Hell, send them to us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can tweet them to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can message them to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And if you send us a suggestion or a comment or a topic idea, we'll likely read it on air. Coming up on This Is Hell, Flint's water crisis is far, far from over. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This 
is hell. For five long years, Flint, Michigan's residents had to put up with poisoned water coming out of their taps. The daily challenges they had to put up with in order to get drinking water, water safe enough to bathe in, changed life for all of the city's citizens. The constant threat of illness, illness that could cause permanent damage, if not death, loomed everywhere. And it still does, as the long-term effects of Flint's water being poisoned are still uncertain. Here to tell us what has happened in Flint since the water crisis supposedly, quote-unquote, ended in 2019. Returning to This Is Hell, reporter Anna Clark wrote the ProPublica article, The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Anna. I am so glad to be here. It's nice to talk with you. Good morning. Good morning. Anna was on our show back in July of 2018 to discuss her book, The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, which won the Hillman Prize for Book Journalism and the Rachel Carson Environment Book Award. It was also a finalist for the Helen Bernstein Book Award and long listed for the Andrew Carnegie Medal. Anna also edited a Detroit anthology, a Michigan notable book, and Michigan Quarterly reviews not one without a special not one without a special issue on water. She is a nonfiction faculty member in Alma College's Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. You can find out more about Anna at AnnaClark.net and you can follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. That's L-E-I-G-H. And I have got to get your Detroit anthology. When did that come out? <laughs> That came out, let me think, I guess it would be um, about six years ago now. Um, so it was uh, uh, before Detroit had come out of the bankruptcy um, and, you know, where for about a year and a half, you know, the city was going through the, you know, the largest municipal bankruptcy in American history and which had prompted this like huge wave of media coverage about the city, documentarians, there's all kinds of things. And um, the anthology was intended to be a kind of space for um, people rooted in the city to tell stories, stories of their home themselves, right? As opposed to um, constantly being the subject of other people's stories. Well, I really, I definitely have to get that. I was uh, born in Detroit. I lived in, uh, oh. was raised in East Detroit and uh, lived in Michigan for 25 years. I was born over on Six Mile in Maras over at St. John's Hospital. Um, so and, you know you're a local because you call it Six Mile. <laughs> see? See? Exactly. And some uh, insider stuff. <laughs> that is some very deep, deep insider stuff. So, uh uh, and we, I definitely want to get into, we'll be talking about the emergency financial ma managers throughout this conversation. We'll get back to the great success they had in Detroit in just a moment. But you subs you describe E. Yvonne Lewis on a hot July day in downtown Flint telling her story about what happened to her during the water crisis. You write, we and about 70 others had gathered where the Michigan Civil Rights Commission was conducting its 2016 hearings on how this Great Lakes city learned that its own water was a threat. Lewis's community health worker and a mother of three testified that she kept a crock pot in her bathroom. To take a bath, she filled the cauldron with bottled water, waited for it to heat, poured it into her bathtub, then repeated the process until she had enough to wash. The image of the slow cooker in her bathroom haunts me. One of many such stories I heard while writing a book about the crisis in Flint, where toxic water was delivered to a city of nearly 100,000 people for 18 months before the state acknowledged the problem. Why do you think that 
image haunts you so much? Of all the stories that you heard while writing Poison City, and you heard a lot of really horrible stories, what do you think it is about that story that particularly haunts your memories? Why is it that crock pot that haunts your memories? See, that's a good question. And in some ways, it's something I should probably talk to with a therapist. Um, but but the, this, the, this image... I think it, partly it's, it's because it just it just startled me out, um, startled me all over again. This was the summer of 2016. So um, the Flint's water crisis, I mean, it had been something that people had been living with for more than two years, but it had been, um, had, it was also like well into the public spotlight. It had been documented. There had been all these stories. I'd been writing about it. And this was just one of those image, one of those like remarks that she made that day that just sort of like startled me all over again and helped me, um, remember, like see anew how bizarre the situation is where a Great Lake city has learned that its own water is a threat and how it disrupts the most basic moments of your life um, in, 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 in creating a situation where, um, you know, a 60 year old women, woman is like kind of going through this like arduous process um, just to get clean. Um, it, it, it just reminds, reminded me of both the physical as well as the um, psychological, emotional, mental health toll of this, um, of this tragedy. And you write how people had been exposed not only to high amounts of lead, a neurotoxin that is especially damaging to children, but a series of bacterial outbreaks, a Legionnaire's disease outbreak officially sickened 90 and killed 12. As Frontline documented, the number of those harmed in the outbreak is likely far more than that. Uh, Now, those numbers, 90 sickened and 12 killed, I mean, those are horrific. But today's pandemic killing thousands daily and sickening many, many more may have left some people jaded. So we do not forget how horrible was the Flint water crisis. You mentioned Yvonne's story about the crock pot and boiling water for a bath. What was life like in Flint without safe water for nearly five years? Well, I mean, if you think about it, I I mean, drinking water is something that many of us have come to take for granted and you don't even remember Um, like how many intimate moments of your life it touches. So it's not just about, you know, replacing the glass of water you have at dinner with a bottle of water, which itself can be stressful enough. Um, But it also, um, you know, thinking about the ice cubes you use and the water you make you coffee and the formula you feed your baby and how you how you wash in the morning and how you wash your hands day to day. You can see in some ways how it's intimately related to <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic in the sense of, of how we are, um, access to water has been um, affirmed as this essential service, right? Like something that if, if everything else shut, shuts down, what still must a city do? Um, and one of that is providing water in part because when people are, um, people need that safe um, uh, water, certainly for their own uh, well-being, but also for the sake of the, the community, right? It's a, because it's a public health threat if people don't have access to safe, clean drinking water. And for people in Flint, it was this like, um, this, this crisis was instigated not by a natural disaster and not by some, some like strange new virus that came. It, it was instigated by a series of choices that caused and prolonged this crisis. Um, so it didn't have to happen. That's part of what's like, like so grievous <laughs> and part of why it's been difficult to um, really grapple with its legacy. It, it led to um, um, 
not just like a, a, a series of problems with the water, like you said, the lead, the Legionnaire's disease, which wasn't even made public for um, the two years of which it was an outbreak and wasn't documented as properly as it should have, which is, you mentioned the frontline documentary, there's the cases are probably very much um, higher. Uh, and uh, were misdiagnosed as pneumonia. There's um, E. coli outbreaks. There was a, um, um, a problem with too much of a chlorine disinfectant that can cause uh, uh, cancer. There um, was, because the, the water was not treated properly, it led to the pipes corroding. So the infrastructure of this whole city was literally breaking down. Um, and to the point where even when Flint did like, finally, after a year and a half, latch on to a safer drinking water source that was properly treated, that wasn't sufficient to end the crisis because the pipes have broken down. So it was like this like um, infrastructural gut punch <laughs> to the city as well, both the public infrastructure and people's infrastructure in their homes, their own water heaters, their own, you know, um, uh, plumbing and faucets and things like that, as well as the damage to their health and bodies. And, and um, like Yvonne uh, tells a story in, in the article you're describing, it's just one of those things where you, it will, it is something that people will live with every single day for the rest of their lives, you know, um, like every, illness, every like challenge, every ailment, they will wonder if it had something to do with exposure of the water, both what was documented and what they just don't know about, what we just don't know about. Um, with the young folks who are especially vulnerable to the consequences of lead poisoning, in many ways, we're waiting to see what happens when they grow up, to see what the effects were of, of this like added dose of vulnerability to one of the world's best known neurotoxins. Towards the end of your article, you do find a silver lining, and we'll get to that later. But I, I was just curious while you're uh, when you were answering that question, I started thinking about to what degree do you think the water crisis prepared the people of Flint to work together when it came to the pandemic? Do you think that the people of Flint are any better prepared to address and react to crises now that they've gone through the water crisis and has it maybe had some sort of beneficial outcome when it comes to the pandemic? This is a really interesting question. And, um, and I'm glad you're asking it because it also, it affirms that uh, people in Flint aren't just you know, victims who had terrible, a series of terrible things happen to them, though that's true, but they're very much agents in the story, right? Um, and uh, it is because of them that we're even talking about this today, because of their organizing, because of their insistence on being uh, seen and heard and ultimately believed. Um, and I do think that a lot of what they did and are doing now um, is creating really interesting blueprints for how to deal with um, public health and public health crises. One um, blueprints that communities all over the country could learn from. Um, they're piloting really interesting um, um, uh, programs, for example, to um, that um, empower uh, communities to be partners and decision makers in. Uh, uh, realms such as like water testing or scientific research and things like this um, that are crucial, not just to doing a better job, <laughs> having better outcomes with the, in those realms, but also in building the civic trust that is essential for carrying out any kind of 
public health program, especially an emergency public health program. So there's been a lot of attention, for example, on um, vaccines and will some people not get the vaccines because they don't trust it because there's this long history of, of, of fear, um, well-warranted fear in many ways that, that, this, um, that uh, this could be something dangerous. Um, I think a lot of what's happening in Flint is creating, um, building these, um, other models for how to carry out similar kinds of programs that um, including in emergency situations and doing so in a way that um, uh, affirms the transparency, the credibility, the um, collaboration that I think is essential to uh, making, make, making public health effect programs effective. The crisis started in 2014. In 2017, a retired state epidemiologist by the name of Corinne Miller was sentenced to 12 months probation and 300 hours of community service and forced to pay a fine of more than $1,000, according to Michigan Public Radio. Miller was allegedly aware of dozens of cases of Legionnaire's disease in the Flint area around the same time the city changed its water source to the Flint River, which caused all the problems. But she didn't report it to the general public. Between 2014 and 2015, a dozen people in the Genesee County area, that's the county that Flint is in, died of the pneumonia-like disease. Another 90 fell seriously ill. So until recent news, when it comes to holding officials responsible, Anna, how much had those who made the decisions leading to the crisis been held accountable up until last week? Um, essentially none. And in, in many ways, it's still an open question because we'll see where these charges go, right? Um, uh, it's, um, I think the accountability piece is one big reason many people say, quote, the Flint water crisis isn't over. When people say that, I think they mean a lot of different things. One is there's been this um, very long drawn out and ultimately pretty unsatisfying and um, exhausting uh, journey to get any kind of justice, I guess, um, for again, a, a purely man-made tragedy. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's so strange. I mean, so about five, actually five years ago this month, the criminal first criminal investigation began. It went on for three and a half years. It had, um, it, it indicted like 15 people. Um, it, including the um, head of the health and human services department, um, spent millions of public dollars, both for the prosecution and the defense of, 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 the, of the people because they're public servants, they're largely uh, state officials who are charged. And then about a year and a half ago, with a new administration, a new attorney general, new leadership that inherited the investigation, um, after a number of plea deals had already been set, there were eight people still being charged. There was um, one of them, that head of health and human services was headed to trial. And then the new uh, leadership decided they were gonna just scrap everything. They were gonna just completely start over. They said that like, they didn't feel it had been properly, evidence hadn't probably been scrutinized. The cases wouldn't necessarily hold up. They were gonna start from scratch. And as they were promising people, they were like, we're gonna do it right. Um, as you can imagine that hit, hit people in the Flint community um, pretty hard. And there a lot of folks are really ambivalent about it. Like, like kind of like, are we just being jerked around here? Is this just kind of an excuse to run out the clock? Like, is, do we need to rebuild this? Maybe this is a good thing. It was very confusing. And then for a year and a half, it's been pretty quiet about um, how that investigation has or has not 
been proceeding until these latest charges came out. And so now there's been this like new wave of folks being like, oh, maybe they're serious or, oh, maybe somebody will be held accountable. Others will say that like, are a little skeptical about um, whether their charges are appropriate um, or uh, will actually last. It's, I think one of the bigger stories here um, <laughs> is like why it is so difficult for there to be um, to have some kind of accountability when clear wrongdoings happen, right? Um, when it's right before happening, right before our eyes, and and why is it why is it so difficult for people to be held accountable for the choices they make that cause or prolong that? Are there things that are not illegal but should be? Are there is there statutes of limitation that need to be revisited? Is there more appropriate kinds of ways of um, um, framing responsibility and liability for public officials. I think there's a lot of like larger questions that are really relevant for environmental justice around the country. Um, if we want to see people, um, if we want to see this like justice piece uh, come through for communities like Flint that have um, just clearly been hurt and didn't need to be. Asking questions that we often don't ask and ask, which are questions like how just is the law? Last Thursday, you write how uh, last Thursday, a federal judge granted preliminary approval of a $641 million class action settlement in the case, believed to be the largest in state history. It will provide for a quote, every person exposed while a minor child, every adult exposed with a resultant injury, every residential property owner, renter, or person responsible for paying Flint water bills and certain business owners, according to the decision. So, Anna, unless my math is bad, and it probably is, I am a product of the East Detroit public school system. That comes out to around $6,600 per resident of Flint. Now, obviously, not every resident of Flint will qualify. I don't know how it's going to be distributed or used. But to what extent do you think this class action lawsuit can address Flint's long-term health concerns and make certain this never happens again? Is $641 million, in your opinion, justice? I mean, it's a pretty, I have to say, like when I heard first heard the number, I was pretty impressed. <laughs> you know, it is a huge number. It is the, it is believed to be the largest in state history. It surpasses the 500 million that have been allotted to um, the survivors of the Larry Nassar case, the gymnasts um, at Michigan State. That was just like two years ago. Michigan's had a hard couple of years. Um, uh, we, uh, um, and there are a lot of things about the settlement that I think are um, very promising, very um, attuned to what happened. I, like for example, it prioritizes children who are most vulnerable to um, uh, the effects of the toxic water. You, those children don't have to prove, like have some medical blood tests from 2015 that specifically, show, like it's just like, if you were exposed to it, they, they, they qualify. I think that's great. I think it, um, I think it also um, wisely like has this like really large, like uh, a class that's has a large scope of those of understanding how many people were affected by the water. Cause certainly it's the residents. Most of all, it is also um, business owners. It is also adults who were um, in the city for sustained lengths of time, like college students and commuters and things like that, who were drinking the water over that time, not as not as much as those who are residents, but but they too um, are uh, victims of the water crisis. So the, it casts a very large net in a way that I think feels true to um, how this crisis affected so many different people in so many different ways. That said, 
as you mentioned, um, when this all boils down, um, it, and they're still working on it right now about who, who qualifies for what and how much and how are we going to divide this up, um, especially for adults, it's it, it's probably not going to be it's not going to be a life changing amount of money um, in any respect. And there are a lot of people who feel really frustrated by that, you know, because uh, between medical bills, between um, the cost of replacing like uh, their water heater, the loss of property value that like, you know, like they're, they, they feel like it's like not, it's just not going to match up to that. I mean, true, like, I wish this never happened, right? Like, and to a certain extent, like there's no way to come up with any settlement that turns back time that um, um, there's no like precise way of, of, of taking away like the harm that was done for this. Um, I do think the settlement's a really um, important uh, milestone, but as, as you mentioned, it's still preliminary. They're still finalizing things. We'll see how, what it looks at the very end um, as people um, uh, weigh in with their, with their particular claims. And of course it does come with that asterisk of, you know, this, this doesn't mean it's all okay. It never, it doesn't mean that everybody is um, entirely made whole. And you point out that in 2014, while awaiting the construction of a new regional water system, officials rebooted the city's old treatment plant and used the Flint River as a water source. This is the source of all of Flint's problems in the water crisis. But the plant did not get the resources to properly treat the water. Most seriously, the water did not receive corrosion control as required by federal law, causing pipes to break down, brown water coming out of the taps that was corroded iron or rust. Why wasn't there any corrosion control? If it's mandated <laughs> by federal really law, question. what explains why this was ignored? Was this just, was it an oversight, a mistake, poor communication? Was it more than that? Excellent question. Surely going to come up in some of the cases. <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, I hope we learn more. Um, it's, um, it is one of the most bizarre things. I mean, there was, um, there's been a lot of attention on the Flint River itself of, as being the problem, but, and, and it's true that the river has, a, like urban rivers everywhere, has a history of pollution and mistreatment and all that, um, but it is actually much better now than it was in um, the 1970s or whatever, um, and had it been, I mean, there are still some issues, but had it been treated properly, this didn't need to happen, you know, that, that this is one of the things that's so egregious. I mean, it was mistreatment. It was like what did or rather didn't happen at the treatment plant. That was the key issue. And yeah, they didn't have the staffing to deal with this complex water source. They didn't have the equipment, the filters, the things like that, that they needed to do this properly. And this key piece that when I've talked to water operators elsewhere in the country, like nobody, nobody thinks none of them have th thought that this was like an obscure part of the law. Like it was all very intuitive. It was like, why wouldn't they do that? You know, it's not, it, it's not like a thing that would usually be easily misunderstood. Um, because of course, if you don't put corrosion control in the water, it leads to corrosion of the infrastructure. And especially as people started showing the brown water, like evidence of the pipes corroding, especially when a whole General Motors plant said the water was corroding its parts so much, it needed to leave Flint's water system and join on with a suburb because it was too damaging. You think these would be red flags that like, oh, um, 
the water is really corrosive. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that we're not using corrosion control. It, 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 it's, it's so baffling. They, um, I will say that there are emails, um, very interesting emails that were between the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality that um, was supervising this treatment plant and uh, the EPA in Chicago that supervised Michigan's agency. And as it, once the EPA kind of dawned on the EPA in Chicago that um, there was no um, meaningful uh, corrosion plan in place, they were kind of poking at uh, the MDQ about, you know, what's going on with that. And then uh, the emails of some of those officials, as they explained it, where it seemed, they seem to be suggesting that, that as they read the law, like they needed to, they were required, their corrosion control plan was to monitor the water without it, um, using it for a period of like, you know, 12 months or something, test it, da, 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 and then decide what kind of corrosion control we're going to use or if we're going to use it at all. Um, that is surprising. And the EPA um, pushed them on it, though, as their own inspector general has um, uh, described, not perhaps as uh, forth forcefully as they should have as this crisis was escalating in real time. Um, and, but yeah, so the state's defense in, uh, as this crisis when happening, was happening of not using corrosion control is that they thought they could just keep an eye on it and then see later if they needed to use corrosion control. On a little bit of my own speculation, I think um, the Flint, this Flint water source was meant to be a temporary water source for a couple of years. Then they were going to have to switch to, they're going to treat uh, Lake Huron water when they joined on that wet mid, uh, mid Michigan, new mid Michigan system um, that was still under construction. Part of me suspects that there was a sort of like, let's run out the clock and do the bare minimum we need to do um, with this temporary water source. And rather than um, add anything or do anything that we might not need to do um, or might need to change when we uh, switch yet again to the new system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But the thing that doesn't make sense to me is why <laughs> it took a year and a half to get back to Detroit's water system. Why didn't the yeah. second they saw what was coming out of taps just I know it's probably not this easy, but just flip the switch and go back to uh, Detroit's water system? Yeah, that's also a good question and is also um, part of the foundation of a lot of the charges of, you know, most of them are um, based on um, not intervening. A lot of them are about not intervening sooner um, or, uh, or being uh, less than transparent with uh, what was really going on. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would have been a little bit um, complex, especially because after Flint left Detroit's water system, it sold a critical piece of pipe that um, would have connected it to it, to that under construction new regional system. Um, but it isn't impossible as evidenced by the fact that they eventually did it, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of, like a lot of the language at the time was like, yes, there was this one problem, but we're fixing it. And then yes, there's this other problem, but be patient. It's still safe to drink. We're making adjustments. We're going to get, you know, there was a lot of like, we're tweaking, we're doing this, we're doing this. There was also some language of like, um, 
um, blaming Detroit. Like Detroit's water department forced us to do this. It's their fault. Like we can't do it. They kicked us off, um, which uh, I think was is being a little bit misleading about how this actually happened. But um, it was, uh, yeah, one of the one of the things that is interesting and in looking back on is like Flint City Council, which didn't have any political power at the time, but they did convene themselves and vote to rejoin Detroit's water system. Um, in uh, the spring of 2015, but were overruled by the emergency manager who really um, kind of mocked them for it, being like, that's crazy, you guys are just being troublemakers, et cetera. That emergency manager is now um, indicted in these latest charges. It's, um, it's, it's, it's just a strange, it's the strangest story of, because at every step you think like, it just didn't need to be this hard. It just didn't need to be this hard. I think one of the things that Flint teaches all of us is that um, you just can't take shortcuts with water. I mean, like people need it every day or they get sick and die. I mean, if they just like, it might've been in, you know, this temporary water switch and some of the like, oh, this is complicated and oh, how do we do this? And oh, da, da, da. let's try to like, just skirt around the edges. Let's delay. Let's see if we can hold out till that new system comes in. Maybe everybody will stop complaining then. You can't, you can't, um, you can't do, you can't make, the, do that <laughs> when we're talking about um, a, a, a resource that people need to live every day. Um, you just, it just, we just got to do it right. So back in 2013, Governor Snyder had emergency financial managers in six different Michigan cities, which meant 9% of the state was not being represented by democratically elected leadership, according to census figures. Most of the cities that were given emergency financial managers, like Flint, were majority African-American cities, leaving 49% of the state's African-American population under emergency financial managers. Do you believe emergency financial managers that that system can be reformed? I mean, here you have the people of Flint voting to switch back to Detroit's water in 2015. And this person having the authority, this emergency financial manager having the authority to just annul that that vote. So do you think they can be reformed or is there inherently something wrong with emergency financial managers? Now that's been a point of conversation for it's across the state for a while because as you said it's 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 affected not just Flint and not just Detroit. I mean it's been communities around the state and school districts that have um, been under emergency management uh, um, that have uh, grappled with the what it means to have your local representation, your local democracy suspended. Now the it's important context that. Um, it was about 10 years ago, there was, um, uh, we had, a, like, like many states, Michigan has like some kind of form of state, had, has long had a form of state oversight for um, communities and school districts that are truly at, uh, in emergencies, like at risk of collapsing in this like downward spiral of debt and so on. The key thing that changed was about 10 years ago, the under Governor Snyder, um, there was an, an expansion of the powers of these emergency managers. So it's not just like they're, they're coming in to um, get the budgets in order. They also uh, have political power, right? So they have the powers that a mayor would have, a city council would have, and additional powers besides that no elected official has, like the right to unilaterally um, sell city assets, like that pipeline that um, I mentioned. 
like the um, uh, uh, the right to make or break union contracts just by themselves. And uh, it is believed that these this these powers were expanded with because the state was get preparing to put Detroit under bankruptcy and was trying to you know kind of get a system that would do that uh, be uh, uh, that that would help carry that, that out. Um, they. Um, um, there was a statewide referendum to overturn this law, and it passed by a wide margin, including communities by, you know, like every county in the state, including very conservative counties. A lot of people are like, that's too much. This is too much. Um, and it was, it was completely, it was rejected. And then in the lame duck uh, legislative session, just, you know, six weeks later, um, the, they passed a new version of the law that this time had appropriations attached to it, some money, which made it immune from another referendum. So they expanded the powers of the emergency manager, the statewide voters uh, rejected it, and then they passed a new version of law that would be immune from voters. <laughs> and, then, um, and then Flint was the first community put under um, this new expanded system of emergency management. Um, and uh, they had a series of four of them for three and a half years, during which all of these issues with the emergency managers um, happened. And one of the very interesting things is like, even now, like as we've had um, some political changeover in the years since um, in statewide offices, the um, emergency manager law remains exactly the same. It has not been changed, has not been modified, even though the governor's own um, in, um, investigative commission in the wake of Flint was suggesting that at least, if not like, at least it be modified, maybe instead of one official um, in charge of everything, maybe we have like a, a board of officials, or maybe it's not just a city um, jurisdiction. Maybe it's like kind of like a, a countywide thing, something that's like, um, you know, has more players involved. Maybe local leaders um, re request it instead of be assigned it. Maybe, you know, they, they are just considering other proposals. And as you can imagine, a lot of people want the thing just repealed completely in the first place and think there's no reform. Um, but interestingly, there's neither of those things have happened. <laughs> um, and uh, the law just sort of sits on the books. It hasn't, there hasn't been an active EM in Michigan since 2018. I think that's um, diminished its urgency for many, especially as like a thousand other really important things have been going on in the years since. But um, it's, it, it remains there. And, um, and if, whether it be reformed, um, or repealed or adjusted, it, it is, I think, one piece of the unfinished legacy of, of Flint's water crisis, because we really face in the most dramatic of ways what happens when there isn't any checks and balances. It's risky. It is risky. Um, and, and lives are really on the line. And so whether, um, so I feel like some attention to that um, in policy, I think is very important. So the vast majority of Michigan voters do not want emergency managers, emergency financial managers. I'm certain that people in the listening audience are probably saying to themselves, I bet it's conservative right-wing people who want to have uh, this emergency financial manager still in place. But you have to remember that this law was signed into law by a Democrat, Governor Jamie Blanchard. So it's kind of hard to just uh, assume that it is only right-wing, only Republicans. So 
So who does want the emergency financial manager? Uh, still wants that law in place? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a good mention. I think like I think a lot of people agree, not just in Michigan but around the country, that it's like you do need some. There needs there like there are communities in crisis, and I, the state does have some responsibility for that, right? Like a lot of the a lot of the. Um, they do. They. It would be wrong for um, a state to watch um, a, any community uh, just completely collapse, right? Um, it, like there should be some intervention model, I guess. Um, but the terms of how we do it, of course, is very clear, so that we're honoring voting rights and dem democratic rights and have checks and balance and all that. Up until um, that twenty, um, that expansion of the law like about. Um, 10 years or so ago, it was a much more limited um, tool that um, helped uh, bring um, an outsider in who isn't um, subject to political, you know, political um, running for reelection or anything. And the idea is like you bring, you bring in someone and they can make like some of these like really hard decisions, often excruciating decisions, layoffs, things like that. And um, and can help get things in shape. It, it's it's worth noting that there have been um, some cases where it's been relatively effective. Like there's been a couple of inner ring suburbs of Detroit, like Allen Park. Like they were um, kind of in a spiral after this like failed movie studio thing. Um, and and another com community um, e course they had. Um, there was like a cycle of corruption that like having an outsider come in to break it up was really crucial for getting the city back on their feet. But those are more discrete financial emergency situations. Um, the emergency manager is not well, system is not well tailored to dealing with systemic poverty and disinvestment and racism, right? Like that's not something you can just come in, um, make a, some budget tweaks, um, um, bring in some, added policies of austerity, even when the city's already like been living like that, and then and then consider it a quote job well done. So um, it, it and, and, and even the defenders of the law, I think, um, who feel like you do need this like really big um, um, kind of uh, <laughs> big footing, I guess, like strategy to uh, uh, buoy communities in crisis, even they would have to acknowledge that um, when they bring in their own folks to do the, do what they do as emergency managers, it doesn't fix everything because they just tend to bring in the same people over and over and over. Like again, Flint had four emergency managers. Um, the community will like have an emergency manager, they'll leave, they'll be get another emergency manager some years later because the problem because these problems are systemic, right? It's not just like a failure of local leadership or not only that. it's it's something that goes well beyond the political borders of the city to um, state policy, federal policy, historic um, uh, 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 trends that um, that uh, created these created this these, um, problems of concentrated poverty. Um, and so I think, um, yes, there are, so, there are people who do think that, uh, like, do want to have some tools for the state to, um, um, I guess, intervene in, in communities in crisis, take responsibility, I guess, for cities in crisis, in, in some ways, um, because of historic state policy, that, 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 that can be under, uh, reasonable in some ways, I think. But it's, um, when in this expansive format, um, it's, 
clearly gotten to the point where it's um, encroached upon really fundamental democratic values at very high cost. The risks are very, very high. Clearly, if they do, if they, if they, have some, if they make the wrong decisions, there's no real accountability for it, none. And um, we just have to face the fact that even when it quote unquote works well, um, it, it's not a solution um, it, it, it is not a solution. It is misdiagnosing the um, crisis of these communities as just being um, problems of local leaders not budgeting appropriately or whatever. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's this much bigger uh, problem of how we created separate and unequal cities in the first place. We have been speaking with reporter Anna Clark, and we've been talking to her for about 40 minutes about her ProPublica article, The Unfinished Business of Flint's Water Crisis, but you still need to go read her article because there is a lot more than even our 40-minute conversation uh, had in her article, and it's really amazing work. You can hear our interview with Anna about her book, The Poison City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy, by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on her last name, Clark. Anna was on our show back in July 20 of eight, 2018. You can find out more about Anna at AnnaClark.net and follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Lee Clark. I don't know if you remember this or not, but our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, Michigan is also one of only two states that exempts both the governor and legislature mm. from open records requests, a fact that delayed or denied access to critical information on the decisions made about Flint's water system. And you mentioned how there's this one judge grand jury that keeps even more information secret from the public. What... Ex- <laughs> What explains Michigan's lack of transparency? You talked about, <laughs> about uh, you know, the emergency financial managers in Michigan. Uh, it seems like there's a hostility to democracy in Michigan. What explains that hostility to democracy in Michigan? Oh, God, that's a big question. And honestly, I probably have to think about it a little bit before answering. I don't want to be glib, but it, I, I will say that I think um, you're right. I think there is this like kind of broader mistrust of transparency um, of, of, of that I think uh, puts people at risk and is um, against uh, some of these like basic democratic values and, and accountability, right? Um, like, like people behave differently <laughs> and speak differently when um, it's a matter of public record. Um, so yeah, Ma- Michigan and Massachusetts, we're the only two states where the, there, we don't have transparency laws, open records laws that apply to the legislature and the governor's office. There have been some bipartisan legislators who have been working to change that unsuccessfully so far. They are going to give it another shot in 2021. Um, but we'll see. And, and that secretive kind of grand jury thing that relates to these latest charges. And it's part of the why, reason why it's kind of like an open question. I mean, we'll see where these go because of the process they're using. They have the prosecutors have not yet presented the evidence publicly that they are using um, to base these charges on, which is sort of why a lot of us are like, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, like, we'll see where this goes. We'll see what this means. Um, some we can extrapolate from, from what we know already, but uh, we don't know. Um, uh, we don't know where this will go. So I think uh, I'm in journalism. So of course I am in um, favor of, you know, 
sunlight laws and, and as much being public as possible. Um, I think that generally they say sun, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And I think that's true. And I mean this as a citizen too, of course, you know, I'm a stakeholder in these communities and in this state, in a city that um, when it had an emergency manager myself, I, I mean, I, I do, um, like I, I understand a lot of the tensions and difficulty and messiness that um, can come up when um, you know you you put more out there. But it's um, I think one thing that Flint story shows with unusual vividness is what the stakes are, um, why it's really important, and why and this is why it's really interesting to see folks in the community build new models with transparency and participation built in from the outset um, in uh, caring and in, in, as they uh, uh, work to solve significant problems. I rarely do a follow-up to a question from hell, but lucky you, you get two questions <laughs> from hell. Uh, because while you, were while you were responding to that uh, question, all I could think of was, to, to what degree do you think uh, lack of transparency, lack of democracy within Michigan contributes to things like the Michigan State Legislature siege that we saw back in, mm. what was that, April? Uh, yeah, late April, early March. Well, I mean, it, it, it does, it does contribute to this like profound breach of civic trust that you can see uh, across the political spectrum and showing up and it, and it, and it, it, and it, and it shows up in sometimes even when that civic, even when like that lack of civic trust is like earned, um, it's like, uh, uh, it can, the reaction to it can be dysfunctional and dangerous, right? Um, I mean, Michigan, Michigan's capital had a, you know, kind of a siege that pre preempted um, that, or foreshadowed in some ways what happened in Washington. And um, it, it's, it's, it, there was this whole plot to like kidnap the governor. There's like really profound um, anger at a lot of the uh, public health precautions taken by the governor um, during um, this coronavirus pandemic. Um, I think, um, I think you can see that uh, when people when, when we don't have transparency, when we when we don't we can't put um, the the facts out there in a timely manner, um, both as citizens and as uh, um, journalists, that like creates situations that breed suspicion and mistrust, and in some cases, um, that uh, um, a, a lack of accountability that puts lives at risk, um, whether it's happening in um, with the decision making that led to like the water crisis or whether it's a situation where people are just you know responding to a lot of like rumors and and so on to react really violently um against them against public officials i i, I just think that like it is it is a very dangerous and hostile climate i think it would help <laughs> if we if 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 public officials were more transparent about their actions um, if there was more good local journalism chronicling it, if there was um, civic participation at every level so that um, we can do democracy better and so that civic trust can be um, not just gotten, but earned. 
Back on uh, May 4th of 2020, I uh, posted on Facebook uh, when the Michigan State Legislature siege was happening that if you wanted to know what the United States would look like if Donald Trump lost the election, this Mm. is the dry run. And it just amazed me that people seem to just take that as just absolutely nothing. And when it was something that was going to it was definitely foreshadowing exactly what we knew was going to happen. Anna, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show again. This has been a fantastic conversation. Your book, Poison City, is really incredible. Everybody should go check it out. And I am going to irritate you for the rest of your life to have you come back on our show. <laughs> well, you flatter me, but I, and, I, and I thank you. But I, I just have to thank you for just like, you do bring a, like a lot of thoughtfulness to these conversations. I do really appreciate it. And I appreciate your sustained attention to all this um and it's no wonder that this is a you have a very engaged community that is sending you things in the post and all that um (laughs) thank you very much and uh now i got to get your book detroit anthology sure i'll send you one just send me an email i'll get it i'll I'll get it to you really (laughs) yeah oh awesome i'll send i got some extras i'll send you one all right take care anna thank you bye bye bringing you Bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week or today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? Richard, do you have some of our listeners' responses to this week's question from hell? Yes, I do. <laughs> Sweet. Are you now sober from your <laughs> contact high earlier today? I believe I am. Um... So, Sebastian M. Oh, so what is our question from hell, we should say? What is your winning answer to this week's question from hell? And Sebastian M. says, meta commentary involving weed, (laughs) Wesley Willis, and directly asking for a trucker hat. (laughs) Wally says, hydroxychloroquine. Nice. What do I have to lose? Mark A says neoliberalisms, neoliberalisms, artificial scarcity has me considering buying weed from a corporation in Wrigleyville. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. Jeff C says the military still rules. Coup successful. <laughs> that is a winning answer. Stephanie M says Jesus rides beside me, but he never buys any smokes. <laughs> no whack wolf says Kovala teens and the working dead all right and our jeffrey says shove dinesh de solsa's face into a bucket of fermented fish guts and hold it there until there's a world peace that is a good idea that's just a good tip take a just shove dinesh d'souza's face in a bucket of fish that's all we have at the moment. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. Tomorrow, Jeff will be watching The Detectives. Alex er, will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. 
Richard, do you know who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here yes, at thisishouse.com? Oh, and that would dog. be Julian Brave Noisecat awesome. on his essay, Apocalypse, Then and Now, from Columbia Journalism Review. It discusses the challenges of indigenous journalism in covering stories about First Peoples. Julian has been on the show a couple times in the past. You can search on his name, Noisecat, and you can find it at our website, thisishell.com. He's the Vice President of Policy and Strategy with Data for Progress, Narrative change director of the Natural History Museum and a fellow of the Type Media Center in Canada, NDN Collective, and the Center for Humans and Nature. Thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me and a classic archived interview each and every week, an interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. All you have to do is sign up now at patreon.com slash this is hell to get our weekly Friday exclusive Patreon only podcast that happens live at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is posted online at Patreon shortly after. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. right here at this is hell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Anna Clark, our guest. Thanks to Richard for producing. And thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude. But keep in mind, also a very dedicated race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>